Hey team, welcome to episode 58 of Transition Talk, where we talk about dental transitions and how to navigate the sometimes messy path to practice ownership. Well, it's often in life that our expectations don't quite match reality. Maybe it's what you imagine life as an adult. Maybe it was how you parent versus how you thought you would parent. Maybe being a dentist is different than you expected. I don't know. When expectations don't match reality, it can be a jolt and can sometimes take a bit to realign. The reality isn't always bad. Sometimes it's better, but changing what we had thought, especially if it was a long-held belief or something, can just take some time. Transitions are certainly no different, and not only is there a risk of expectation versus reality, but there's also typically some emotions involved, which makes it harder to differentiate the two. Today, we'll talk about how, as a seller, you can manage the expectation and reality of your transition. Hello, Mr. Loretto. How are you? Miss Ratcliffe, how are you doing? That sun shining in on your face. I know, I know. You, you know, listen, on that whole expectation thing, this is kind of goes into kind of what's going on with me and kids right now. And my expectation was that kids wake up as first year college students at 730 to 8. We're making breakfast together. We're talking something positive. They're wanting to help me clean up in the kitchen and talking about their day. They're going off into their part-time jobs they have over the break. Everything is positive and straight A's and they're very career oriented. Yeah, I think I, I should have had a maybe a seller <laughs> consultation where my expectations would not be this far down. And the reality is the two little suckers are back at, at OU. And this is really bad for me to say, but I think we both needed a little break. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you probably did. I mean, I'm, my guess is a uh, reality was like 11 or 12 or one, you had to make them get up. And then there was like always dishes in the sink because they random grilled cheese and then ask for money. Yeah. You, you don't have to be a detective to figure out what Cole Loretto uh, ate at about three in the morning because he leaves all evidence out on the counters. So uh, the drawers are open. It is special. I got a good buy. You know, that's what I got yesterday when they both went, bye, dad. See ya. Like, you know, hug it out. Let's have some tears, you know, something. I'm like, my expectations, Christy, were super high. Now I'm just like, okay, they're both alive and they say goodbye, you know? So <laughs> I had to have an adjustment. I'm trying in 2021, just set the bar like, a little lower than I think it should be. And then I'm like always excited by whatever happens. <laughs> Anything happen on the, on the Ratcliffe front? Uh, no, we had a big birthday. Husband turned the big 4-0. I'm not sure if his expectation versus reality was what he thinks 40 should be or not. But here we are. He was probably thinking like a golf trip to like Vegas with his buddies you know, three days, just fun. You know, that's probably what, that's what his expectation was. Instead, he got 40 balloons in the living room yesterday. And we're going to dinner on Saturday. We are going to dinner. It is a fancy restaurant. And I mean, in COVID times, sorry, you should have been born in like another year because this is not the year for big milestone birthdays. <laughs> so... Looking forward to this episode. Me too. You know, and I feel like there's a little bit of this that goes into every transition we do. Like at some point in any transition, we kind of have to have like an expectation versus reality conversation. And sometimes it's really early on. Sometimes it's in the legal doc. Sometimes it's a buyer, you know, that expected, you know, a price or some type of negotiation. And a lot of the times like those are just, we can navigate those. And there's always a little bit of that. But I think our purpose and what I hope today is some of those big hurdles, like as you're preparing for transition 
or, you know, a lot of our sellers in particular, which of course this episode's driven a little more towards them. A lot of our sellers will simply kind of, they think about this for a long time before they actually jump in to add the associate or to find the buyer. And that can kind of create some long standing expectations that are kind of built into like just their thought process. And it's a little bit hard sometimes to break those. And so a lot of our initial conversations sometimes are just, what are you thinking? What's your expectation? You know, what do you think about price? How long do you want to work back? And a lot of those are just so we can really get a handle on what their expectations are um, and making sure they do match reality, right? Because, and we'll talk about this here in a second, but your expectations can be your expectations, but we have to match them with the right buyer or match them with the right set of circumstances or they will not become your reality. You know, I think the biggest thing here, and this is what we're going to start with, is valuation and price, right? Like that's a big one. And I know this episode is is definitely speaking a lot to our sellers because and what I enjoy the most is having those early conversations with the seller just to set that expectation, having those early conversations too with the buyer of what that expectation may be for that practice. Does, does this make sense? And so it's just high level. I mean, these people realistic because there's so much information that's going into this decision making. And many times they're on the same page, buyer and seller, many times at the seller before they bring the buyer on, it's just not where they need to be. And, and so it's either A, somebody like our firm guiding them back to reality, setting a higher expectation to what they were actually thinking, or just saying, hey, we are not a fit. You're definitely not in a place to make this type of decision. And these are four or five reasons why. And I think that a lot of what is really making this process confusing with the value of their business is just the social media of evaluations and PEs and DSOs and private equity that are going into these people's heads. And then they they don't know reality and how their particular circumstances is truly value different than that guy down the street. So I know that's one of the subjects that we wanted to hit on. And I know that you deal with a lot of this as well. So what do you want to kick off there on that topic? Yeah, you know, for me it is, you know, we're big proponents of education and gather all your facts and do all your diligence. Valuation is also one of those things where I think you kind of have to be careful, right? Because there's so many pieces that go into evaluation. I'm going to talk just like private valuation first, then I'll tackle that PEDSO thing. But there's so many pieces that go into what evaluation is, right? We can generally say valuations range from the average practice that should value at 70%. Well, we know that they're your, what's your profitability? What's your transition plan? Where's your practice? How old is your equipment? Or is it computerized and digital and referral based? And there's all of these things that go into it. And so sometimes what I find is I'll talk to a potential valuation client or a seller who is just thinking about their price, you know, and we'll talk about kind of where we see it and they'll kind of be taken aback because they've talked to, I don't know, they've listened to another podcast or they've talked to their buddy or they've talked to their CPA who really doesn't do anything dental, but is their CPA and they trust them and they give them some other random rule of thumb that they kind of apply across the board and it's not applicable to them. And so for me, I want you to go and gather facts, but you have to gather complete facts, right? Like not just like one opinion and there's all of these multiples or, you know, questions or terms that you're not aware of. Well, then you don't really have, you can't really use that as a comparable. You can't say because my buddy two states over 
got 110% of collections that I'm going to. And you also have to know what that source is coming from. Is it it someone trying to sell you something? Is it someone who's going to get a percentage of something? Is it even the same specialty? Do they know dentistry? So there's a whole slew of things that I think you have to be informed about as you gather your facts, right? You know, at the end of the day, we always kind of fall back on lending, right? Like if if someone can buy your practice for that price and they can go get third-party lending, fantastic. For the most part, that's going to fall within that, you know, 65 to 85%. There are some little caveats and that's of collections, but there are some caveats, but that's kind of the range. And then someone who is going to need to know more about your practice than just the collection level in order to give you an estimated price. And then the corporate DSO PE thing that kind of is out there, you have to know that if you're going to sell your practice to a private person, you are never going to get a corporate DSO PE type multiple or price. You're not going to get as a GP, it is going to be incredibly hard and rare for you to get 120 or 140% of your collections or six times your EBITDA or whatever that number is that you've heard. You're not going to get that. And if you have been lucky enough or you have explored that and received an offer and you choose not to go that route and you choose to go the private route, that buyer doesn't care what a private corporate entity was going to pay for your practice because that's not them. It's not the same transition. It's not the same structure. So you kind of have to wipe that clean from your mind, you know, say, great, that was an option that was on the table. It's not the direction I'm going. I'm going to shift over here. I'm going to do a private, you know, kind of price. And that's the price I'm going to go with. So I think you have to understand the difference between those. So let's be simple. $2 million practice, your private practice, you may have like a one or two day week associate. So it's a busy practice. That's what corporate likes. Six operatories. That's what they like as well. It's got a great overhead. The cash flow that's available to you and the associate is call it 900000 very profitable in the $2 million. And in this example, the private equity group says, I will give you $3 million, 150% of collections. So $3 million for this business. And so you take that and it's like, well, that's a number. But the reality is they're not giving you $3 million. That was a value of $3 million. They're going to give you maybe 70% of the $3 million. So technically, they're giving you $2 million. And then technically, you're not going to make 900, you're going to make like 300 from that point forward over a six year period. And it's that all those conditions of taking that pay cut, all those conditions of not being in charge, all those conditions that you've got to invest back into the separate LLC entity that now you own that you're going to hopefully get another cut on one day. It's all those conditions that say, hey, I don't want to do this. But the only thing you heard is my business worth 3 million bucks. It's just not reasonable and fair that you can take that information and without all those conditions and apply it to, hey, now I want you, buyer, just to give me $3 million because I know it's what it's worth. It's not the same. Setting expectations on the private practice, private buyer is totally different than the PE. There's not a blended meet in the middle thing. I mean, if, if the buyer is willing to pay $3 million in the $2 million practice or 1.5 or 1.7, I just haven't seen that buyer, nor have I seen the bank to support that. And one more thing just to, to show you just on my value is the same as the next guy. Three cases, super quick. East Tennessee Orthodontist spoke to today. 400 collections. What's the value of this person's business? Zero. You know why? Because care, in this case, the doctor is shutting down. There's no buyer. So the value of the 400,000 collection is zero. The value of the million for practice in Ohio that has a 30% overhead nets $1 million. What's the value? Zero because he never found a buyer. What's the value of a practice out in West Texas that did a million dollars of brand new beautiful equipment where the doctor passed away in December? 
What's the value? Right now it's zero because there's not a buyer. So regardless of what DSO, regardless what percentages or your buddy down the street, you always have to have that buyer, in this case seller, and can be reasonable of what your expectations are and what their expectations are. And we just can't use a bunch of these what if, well, this guy or that guy, and just apply it and not look at any other things tied to it. It's your individual practice comes with risk. And that's what taking a look at all these risks and that obviously what your team does can set real expectations for a value for that type of business. It makes me think of this. So essentially like a, a valuation, right, is putting a price on it. But the true kind of definition of what a fair market value is, is the price that a willing buyer and a willing seller will pay for something, right? When we do evaluation, we are trying and anyone else that does evaluation, we're trying to kind of pinpoint what that price is if those two parties existed. But like you said, if there is no buyer, there is really no price. And we, we ask this question all the time for buyers when they're saying, hey, I might buy into this practice, but I don't know. Our question is always like, well, what is your other option, right? Like if you don't want to do this, what's your other option? And I think the same question can be asked of sellers, right? I have this seller or this buyer who's willing to pay X and it may not be what you want. Well, what's your other option, right? If you can just hang around and keep working and it's not a health problem, just keep doing it then if you're not happy with that price that's been put forth. But if you need to sell or you have to sell for health or other reasons, or you're just tired and you want to sell and you're in a hard area to kind of market and find someone, that may be your price, right? You have to be okay with that, but you can't just have a number that you've had in your head and say anything else that's put on the table doesn't fit, right? Like we'll always fight if we feel like, hey, a price that's been put forth isn't fair, doesn't represent, or there's someone else out there who we know is willing to pay for this other piece. That's not what we're saying, right? We're not saying accept anything, but it's very much a, hey, be realistic about what you have and what the opportunity is and, and the, your pool of buyers that are going to be willing to pay whatever you're asking or whatever your expectation is. So, okay. Another one that I always run into a bit, it's a little touchier of a subject, expectation versus reality for a buyer's goals. Okay. So what I mean by this is I often work with sellers who feel one way or the other, and this is really catered towards walkaway sales or you're selling hundred percent. I work with sellers who say they're almost offended when a buyer doesn't need them or want them to like mentor, right? They don't need that. Maybe, maybe it's because they're experienced. Maybe it's because the practice is smaller. Maybe it's because the practice is like the opposite from a technology or process standpoint of what they kind of envisioned it will ultimately be. And so they don't feel like they need the seller. There's oftentimes this kind of hurt feeling. It's a little bit more emotional and ego, and it can really kind of drive a little bit of a wedge, right? Because it comes across even when the buyer is not, doesn't you know, make it seem, it comes across a little bit disrespectful. That's what they hear, right? Even if the buyer has done it super respectfully and, and you know, not, not in a negative way, that's tough. Any advice for, for that point? Because it's a hard hurdle. Yeah. On our little pre-recording meeting, when we talked about, I was like, what do you mean here? And I was like, oh, girl, you're going there, huh? This is... This is <laughs> you're, you're about ready to hurt some people's feelings. You, <laughs> The younger Christy would have held back on that, but uh, older Christy's like, "No, I'm going to go there. No, I'm going to go uh, there. It, it's this is real. This is this will really hurt the seller's feelings right now because you know they they've gone to all these courses. They they have these relationships maybe with the referral sources with the patients, and they're doing these certain procedures. They're a certain way, and now all of a sudden, this new person is going to come in 
and do it differently. They're going to maybe over time change the brand, over time change the type of procedures, maybe raise the fees, drop insurance. They may market differently. They may do a bunch of more aggressive cases that maybe they weren't doing or stop doing some of the cases that that doctor was really known for in the community and do some of these other things and grow it differently. And man, oh man, does it hurt that senior doctor's feelings. And so you have to be willing on a walkaway cell is to relinquish all of that emotion to all of those things. And you can't expect them to be exactly a little mini you to do exactly what you did. If you can find the mini me that, you know, is perfect and took all the classes or wants to take all the classes and it's just like the perfect, like, you know, your, your child, you're bringing in your son or something, your daughter that, you know, I got it. That, that's beautiful, but it doesn't always work that way and can't be offended you know, by then wanting to do something differently. Yeah. And I think that's the thing. I think it's if you know, well, there's two things here. You have to know what you want. Do you want to mentor? Do you want someone who needs that? Because most often there's a buyer we can find that might be able to do that and fit that kind of need that you have from a transition standpoint. The other thing that I always tell sellers is to kind of, because look, I am by no means saying that there's not a huge piece of this transition that's personal, but there's also a part of this is just business, right? And so you kind of have to, with every feeling, I always like to kind of try to say, like, talk to yourself a little bit and be like, okay, is this like emotional thing? Or is this like a business thing, right? Most often, if you can kind of bifurcate those two and like, think back, like we said in episode 57, you were not you when you started the practice. You were young and you had ideas and hopes and plans and you know that some of those probably failed. And you are trying now to say, hey, buyer, let me show you all the things I've learned and let me help you not fail, right? And that's admirable and I love that about almost every client I work with wants to do that. But there's a part of you that just kind of has to let the buyer fail a bit and let them make their own decisions. And you can try to gently guide them if you're involved. But if they don't want that, like you pressuring them to do that or feeling wounded or kind of getting upset or whatever, isn't going to help the situation. Like it's very much like parenting, right? Like at a certain point, your kid's not going to listen to you and you have to hope for the best and push them out of the nest and go about your way. Right. And so I think that's an important part to like, if you feel, if you know, during a transition, if you feel like there's something that's bothering you, like, why is it bothering you? Is it an emotional thing or is it a business thing? Is it a term thing? I mean, if you can figure that out, that often helps with how to resolve it. I think too, that one of the things you said about being wanting to mentor, many of them do, they, they really want to be involved to mentor that person. But you also have to make sure that the buyer wants to be mentored. Then there's that financial piece, because sometimes in the buyer's perspective, yeah, they're being mentored by you, but maybe you're charging them for that. And maybe for their standpoint, they believe they can't afford that relationship because you're there and maybe doing some of the procedures and getting paid. So it is a conversation that we'd like to have early on of what your expectations are from that, not just the financials, but how long you're there, what your relationship is with the buyer and the patient's kind of going forward. And then also for us to have that same interview and set the expectations for the buyer, just to see kind of what they're thinking. That's why I love giving budgets for the buyer when they do buy the business of the senior doctor staying on. It's not necessarily 35% of collections, but it's the number of days that perhaps that you might want to work. It's the number of days for the year. I love it when we get creative and just say, how many days do you want to work? Two days, three days. And I'd rather budget you, you know, 60, 70, 80 days for the year. You get some vacation. You come back. You may work two weeks in a row back in the practice as the associate. 
give that new owner, you know, some time off as well. And if you think if you show those kind of creative things, then it's this flexibility on both sides. And it just it's natural that the mentorship and the mentoree kind of get together closer when everyone sees the numbers and the financial part works, then there's more time for you guys to kind of click post sale is what, in my opinion, is is missing for a lot of these that fail. Agree. And I think that mentor, like the buyers that want mentorship are just real nervous financially, right? Like they want you there, but they also know that this is a huge purchase. They're not sure if the cash flows work. And so I think sometimes sellers see that hesitation as an, I don't want you when really it's like, I want you, but I can't commit that because I don't want to like backtrack on my commitment. And I don't know if I, you know, so sometimes just getting in there and just seeing how it goes remembering that there's an anxiety a little bit on the buyer side if you're a seller. So another one, and this kind of has a few different components, but if there is an investment that's made by the seller, right? And I'm just going to go super high level and I'll, we'll kind of dive into a few areas. I think it's important to understand what your expectation is on the return of that investment in a transition, right? And I think there's what type of investment and then how long ago was that investment made and why? So that you can understand how, because that's a question we get a ton is like, hey, I did X, Y, or Z, you know, anywhere from like last year to six years ago, how much do you think I'm going to get back from that investment, right? A lot of people think because they have a loan out on something or, you know, they're still financing it or they're still paying it off then that means that it still should add value to something like your financing decisions are not related to how it impacts your value, right? If you've chosen to finance something over 30 years and you're still paying it off, does not mean that it actually has any value left to add to your practice. So that's a big kind of common misconception when it comes to value. But let's talk about this investment. So one of the like easiest straightforward one is a seller buys new equipment prior to a transition, how and when does that impact the transition and the value? So I love my equipment people, but typically equipment people will say, Hey, Dr. Jones, you need to get this practice updated. You need to do this, this, and this go ahead and invest like $300,000 so that you have something that's more marketable and that you can transition in the future. And uh, that sounds really good. And you make a $300,000 investment and sure it's nice and pretty. And yes, it is more marketable. But the reality is we can look at this just like a home or any other type of investment. If you have a million dollar business and it makes 450 grand and it's got some outdated stuff and a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, it's a million dollars and it makes 450 and it has nicer stuff. What's your value? Not much difference, a little bit more. But if you put 300 grand in this thing and make it nicer, it's not worth 300 more grand. If I do the same business today that on older stuff, my value might be, 800,000 in that example. And if I put 300 in, it does not make this business $1.1 million. So you need to know that. So number one, start from there. Number two is buy equipment because you need equipment. Buy equipment because it's not working. Buy equipment because it's making you more efficient and make the investment in the practice over time. I actually like to make these equipment purchases throughout the years, not just all at one time. Keep it all updated along the way. But you just need to set the expectation in your own mind that making this asset investment is not going to necessarily change the valuation of your business. It's going to help, but it's not going to be dollar for dollar. So number one, let's set the expectation there. Second thing I would say is if you have an associate in that business, have a conversation with the associate and the conversation is going to go like this. Hey, associate, we have a $1.1 million business. 
My goal is that we grow the business. I know that if I make some capital improvements to the business, I may not get dollar for dollar for that, but I know that we need to make this investment. So I want us to understand and be on the same page that if I go out and spend two hundred dollars or $300,000 today before you're an owner, I'm not going to get 100% return there. All I'm asking you is when we value this business that we look at this maybe loan separately together and potentially take over that loan or do something that we can meet in the middle because I just don't want to take a hit on it. And if not, I'm not going to invest at all. We're going to use broken equipment for the next three years, then value. So you want to at least educate that buyer. I'm not saying be cheap about it. But I'm also not saying let's go get CT machines and three lasers and, you know, a brand new CAD cam and ADIC equipment and finish out the office. And then you to be let down six months or two years from now that, quote unquote, you're not getting a good value for your business and Kane Waters or NDP, you don't know what you're doing. Someone didn't set the expectations. And so that's what this episode is about is setting expectations before you make these major investments. Yep. Another one that we see a lot is the startup office that like someone would do a satellite, right? And so they do this startup and they do it and maybe either they didn't plan for a transition or they thought it might make it more valuable or whatever it might be. And now they're either trying to sell the whole thing or more commonly they do it and they realize they actually can't do both. And they try to sell that satellite as its own kind of offshoot. Let's talk about that. Perfect example. So take it, uh, let's say it's a million three practice is successful. We've got this D4 coming in. In the meantime, it's another location, five or 10 minutes down the road. I'm going to be the investor in this example, Christy. I'm going to be bringing you in. This guy down the street, this 10 minutes, he sells this practice. I, I basically tell you, hey, I'm going to buy this business. I'm going to get it set up. I'm going to put all this money into it, a half a million dollars and do a startup in that location. The bottom line is I have a financial commitment in that. I bring you into that. And now you want to become maybe a partner in this overall business. So if my first practice stays at a million three, but I put, let's say, $500,000 into this new business, and let's say that new business is only doing $400,000. So what do you think the value of that $400,000 business is? Well, I don't know. It's not worth much because it's not collecting much. It's not profitable. It's anything, it's probably a drag on the overall office, the overall $1.7 million machine. Reality is, I don't want to discount that me. I don't want this. I put 500 grand in this and I know it's growing. I can see that the marketing is just kicking in. Now we're at 40 new patients a month. A year from now or two years from now, this is going to be a million dollar business based on these new homes, based on this. So I don't want to sell it too early and not get a return on my capital. So at the same time, I don't want to, lose the associate because you know associates like if you let me buy in i'm walking right so now same things the expectations haven't been met so the buyer needs to understand i made this investment it's it, this is where it's at once it gets to here this makes sense that you buy in i just don't want to lose money on the investment christy when you're buying into the 1.7 million if you can hang out and wait for me or if you don't mind paying a little bit more the one three is valued here you know, we may have to value this 550 location. It's only doing 400 at 450. That's a little high, more than 100% of the collections of that. But you see all the equipment, you see all that, and your expectations are real. Buy into this 1.3, we'll do an equal partnership on this thing over here. But let's be flexible, right? So that's setting expectations from now from the seller, but most importantly, the buyer, so that we don't try to sell something to the buyer 
a year or two down the road and they're listening to podcasts basically saying, well, why would you ever buy that? That doesn't make sense. And so again, you got to hear the entire story here. And so sometimes the valuations of those small little startups don't really make sense. We just need some time to let them kind of grow. Yep. I have a buyer working with, you actually been working with him for a while, but we looked at an opportunity probably about a year ago and it was a similar situation. Like an established doctor had started a startup because he saw an opportunity finished it out. It's great. Kind of had doing really well, but he had a primary location and just distance wise, the seller was, wasn't working. Right. And so he wasn't really investing the time in the satellite he needed to, but the price he's wanting is extremely high, like probably 20 or 30% more, but it's because he knows what the opportunity is. He has an investment in it and he's like, Hey, this is what it is. Well, our buyer kind of said, no, that's too high. I'm not willing to pay that. I'm going to go explore these other opportunities. I'm going to work as an associate. Well, a year later, he kind of can't get that practice out of his mind. The practice is still doing well. And so now he's kind of come back and said, hey, I am willing to pay more for that, right? But the seller basically said, hey, look, this is what I'm willing to take. This is what the practice has the opportunity to do. And I'm happy to hold it until like that's reasonable or you're ready to do it. So I think that was like very clear communication. They both kind of separated and now kind of it may work out. The guy goes back and is willing to like pay more and the seller is willing to fight like seller finance because he understands the lender's not going to necessarily be able to give him what he wants. And so, you know, expectations and reality, like seller had his goals and buyer now is like coming back around. So I think it's one of those things where, you know, as long as you seller are willing and understand that like what I'm wanting may be outside of the box and I'll either find someone or I'll adjust them, right? Like you can either wait it out and find someone who agrees with you and sees things the way you do and has the capacity, or a lot of times what happens is you hear the same thing from enough buyers and you realize maybe, hey, if I want to do this, I may have to change some component of what I'm offering. And then that's how a deal gets done. So yeah, so let me flip it now to show you what it's like for a buyer consultant. So let's just say in that practice, which I know what you're talking about, is doing 600 collections and it's got doctor production booked out, it's fee for service, it's all nice and new, and the price is 600,000, 100% of collections for a GP type, type office. So it's unheard of. You wouldn't necessarily pay that, except if you can sell me on why that it's worth more than that. In this example, it's got all new stuff, it's where you want to be. The doctor's literally only open two days a week because the doctor is running another three day a week practice 15, 20 miles away. And they're doing 1.2 and they just can't keep it up. So that's the reason this practice is stuck at six. It's easily going to be a million if just somebody was there. And there is no other opportunities. You love the area and you can see it and you like all the equipment, the finish up. And it, it just makes sense for you. Then, yes, it makes sense that you overpay, quote unquote, 150000 What's the difference? Like if you would have paid four fifty for a practice that was just okay, but then you invest another $150,000 on equipment for this piece and that piece. It's got an endo set up. It's got some surgery set up. I set it for IV sedation. All these things that you added up. It's like, well, that's 150 grand right there. So it's exactly. That's why we would pay that premium. That's why the doctor wants to charge a premium because he can see it. So just looking at it from different sets of buys of what does it make sense? And so for that buyer, I'm excited for them that they finally get it and hopefully come back and 
you know, win-win for the both, both seller and buyer. Yep. It's interesting to see these kind of play out and kind of come back around, but excited for that one. Okay. Another one, expectations versus reality. We see this a lot with either associate to owner or associate to partner type of transitions where the seller has made an investment either to bring an associate on, right? That needed in order to accommodate space and growth kind of had to invest either in adding ops or maybe new equipment or whatever it might be to bring an associate on, or that associate was maybe going to bring a new procedure or was a specialist and therefore the seller or owner has to kind of invest in order to make that possible, right? For that associate to be able to, to work there. Oftentimes when we get to transition, whether it's one year or five years down the road, the question or the comment sometimes is, but I made all of that investment to bring this person on. How does that play into the value? Okay. So let's talk about that. (laughs) I'll start with the buyer because I think it's so comical because, you know, I'll go back to the million three practice, which is busting at the seams on the on the GP side. Every specialty could be different. It could be the six endo day. It could be the 2.5 ortho day. It could be 189 perio, whatever it is. There's certain, you know, again, there's always that procedure max that you're at. So we'll just use GP. So if it's a GP and it's a million three, and now two years later, it's a million seven, the young new associate their opinion is the 400,000 of increased collections that the doctor, it's 100% profit, number one. They're literally, they don't pay any tax on it, nothing. It's just going home to their bank account. And that's why they're remodeling their house and they're driving a new car because of them. And it's just comical, this the lack of communication and understanding of the, of the financials don't work that way. I mean, number one, the associate is getting paid. The associate got paid, you know, probably $150,000. There was social security tax that was associated at 7% of equated to almost $10,000 of social security tax. There was the assistant. There was the lab and the, and the supply costs and the office supply costs. There was maybe some branding. There was maybe courses for CE. There was this. There was that. And, and so there is a break even at some point that the seller did make a profit. So... Number one, I think it's important for the seller to know what that is, explain it along the way so there's no misconception of who's making money and, and who's not. And so that's the first thing I would say. The seller is understand what the breakeven is for that associate. Associate, be realistic that you are growing to practice, but it wouldn't be that fast unless that that seller was basically giving you all of these patients if you've got 2,000 active patients, yes, your IV sedation, yes, these procedures, but you're doing zero marketing. You're just in the practice and they're diagnosing it and, and putting it into your column. So you can't, it's not dollar for dollar that you brought all this to it. It's a X years of branding and marketing and patient relationship building so that that team of people can hand those procedures off. So you've got to respect that. And it's not just uh, nothing would be reasonable and fair that. I'm going to say that for the seller, we're just going to take that last year of collections and charge a high premium and you got to pay for your growth, but it's definitely not, you know, let's get evaluation before. And uh, this is, it's only reasonable that I'm growing this thing. And why should I pay for that? There are significant costs that the seller will incorporate uh, with bringing you into to this equation. So, you know, I think there's a, probably a whole episode we could probably do on this topic, but pedo ortho or like multi-specialty practices 
oftentimes they're created by bringing in an associate of another specialty, right? Like pedo ortho, very common pedo group will bring an ortho in, kind of build that out, then allow that you know, ortho partner to buy in. So I think there's a lot of content there. So I'm going to earmark that for another episode, but this is common, right? That the pedo office has to make an investment in order to bring an ortho in, right? And so we've had it happen a few times where, and typically it's a couple of years after the associate starts or sometimes longer, it just really is dependent, but let's say it's a couple of years before the ortho buys in. And so you know, maybe the, I don't know, the $2 million practice becomes maybe a $3 million practice because of the ortho referrals and that stays in and it builds up until it's time. So we value the practice based on this $3 million. And then we say, Hey, associate, here's kind of your buy-in amount. Well, oftentimes that pedo office probably had to do some type of build out and they're probably paying on that loan. Well, there's two ways that this is handled, right? At the onset, The practice says, hey, we're doing this build out for you and you're going to have to participate in it or nothing is said about it. And then after we value it, we say, hey, by the way, you're going to pay this value plus you're going to pay part of this loan that we use to kind of build out this ortho space or whatever space it might be. Clearly, I think you can guess which way goes over better, right? When we've communicated it the first time. And, you know, I could argue both sides of this, right? Like if I look at it from a buyer's perspective, I could say, hey, but you valued the practice like with the ortho collections and and the profitability from that. And so you're accounting for that, right? You've profited from me using your story. But then on the flip side, right? If I'm the pedo group, I could very much say, hey, we're referring everything to you. Like we made this investment and yes, but like we brought you on, we took the risk. Like, yes, you should have to pay for that. Like you're getting the benefit of that. Now you're going to be an owner and depending on how you're splitting profits, you're probably benefiting from the pedo side, which you have no piece of as well. So just kind of keep that in mind. I think that's those multi-specialty transitions where you're kind of building out a whole new space for to kind of create those multi-specialty practices. Communication is just so important and making those decisions and saying, hey, if we do this, this is how we will be incorporating that into your buy-in down the road. Luckily, all the transitions that we've done, there's been like a reasonable, you know, understanding of, of what that opportunity is and what they're taking on and cash flows have made sense. But you can see how that could very easily go the other direction. I can't believe you just delivered that. Th- th- those are the hardest ones to ever consult on, Christy. You, you did that so politically, like nice and everything. Those are so dang hard because there is no just valuation of this and normal and it is the pedo ortho transitions are by far the most complicated there's so many what-if scenarios even as a large cpa firm with cane waters there's so many different models that we have on how we split money there it is freaking complicated beautiful marriage low overheads they make a ton of money but they are very, very complicated to put together. And your team has done an amazing job of, of doing that, but that comes with complexity for sure. So I, I agree. It's a whole nother episode that we can put together on that, but they're setting all those expectations early on. Usually people come to us in the 11th hour and they can't figure it out. And now we're trying to unwind it. And that's what causes the most work and the most headache. So we're always trying to get these relationships early on where, None of this has been figured out. We're kind of laying all that out is obviously our ideal relationship that we build with you, but we will keep taking on clients there at the 11th hour that think that it's all done. And those are sometimes the ones that are the most difficult. I think one of the ones that you just completed, it was, was it 900 communications or, yeah. or what was the? Over 900. It was like 
um, communications. Yeah. And I just think oftentimes those practices just have more people too, right? So more people, more opinions, more, you know, maybe advisors, like, you know, it just kind of is, it kind of just kind of expands and expands out. So 900 communications between your team, between each of the doctors, between advisors, attorneys, banks, other CPAs that they have on the individual side that are just coming through to your team that you're docking. Yep, like an email hoarder so I can count all of them. Probably have emails back from 14. And so that kind of goes into our last point that I want to talk about. And this one's a little bit self-serving. And, you know, I don't do that often here. But I think it's important that a seller understand that transitions are a whole lot of work and that engaging us should make it easier, right? And or engaging really an advisor should make it easier. It should streamline communications. It should help you have structure, but we will not do everything for you, right? Like this is a big deal. It's a very important transition. And there are things that you will have to participate in, right? And the big one is gathering all the documents, answering questions about the documents. There are questions that we won't be able to answer no matter how many documents we gather because you know your practice, right? And there are questions that are more efficient coming directly from you versus us, right? And there are times when a buyer wants to hear that, even if we have the answer, they want to hear it from you, okay? So most, I would say 90% of our clients understand that, they enjoy that, they wanna show off their practice, they wanna give us everything, but around 10%, and some of them don't even become clients because of this, Like they just feel as though they shouldn't have to give all the information that they, you know, that we should be able to go in their system and pull the information or whatever it is to try to not be that group of people. If you're listening to this, you're open to learning. Just know that we're asking that information and a buyer is asking for that information and a lender is asking for that information because they want to understand what you're selling, right? And you should be very open and willing to provide that because you want to help educate them on why whatever terms are being put forth makes sense. And so the more information that we can give that how timely we get can give them that information really, really speaks volumes and not giving them information or not being able to give them information says something, even if it's not true, right? It says that either you're trying to hide something, which is rarely true, or it says you can't provide the information, which makes a buyer nervous that you don't know your numbers or you can't pull your numbers. And therefore, how do I know what's being pulled is right if you don't know how to get it? So I'd say all that to say we are help and we guide our clients. And you know, I can't tell you the number of times I've Googled, you know, how to pull certain reports from these one-off systems that we don't hear about often that, you know, when a seller doesn't know how to use them and we will kind of do whatever we can to kind of help you gather the information. But I think going into this transition process with the expectation that it will be a lot of work and an expectation that emotionally it will take up a lot of your time too, right? You will think about this more than you think you will, I think is really important, right? And if you're in a situation where you have the ability to know and plan for when you enter a transition, then take that. I know that's not always everyone's case and sometimes health or other reasons cause you to need to transition at times that maybe aren't ideal personally. But, you know, I wouldn't go into a transition right before I had a baby because you're probably thinking about a lot of other things at that time. It's probably not true, but but there's just life things that you're going to need to focus on. And if you can choose, just know that it's going to take a lot of time. I have a seller right now who basically said, I can close to March 1st. If I can't close by March 1st, I'm going to close 
April 15th or beyond because I'm having a grandbaby and I don't want to think about anything related to this transition in between March 1st and April 15th. And I love that, right? And so we can set goals and rules and we've told the buyer that and we've told lenders that and we're going to meet March 1st. But if we don't, he knows that his ability to focus is going to not be there in between you know, that next month. And so we're going to accommodate that. So I think that's just important to kind of know as you kind of start to go into transition. Would you do a surgery on a patient without full x-rays? The answer is no. You need to know that patient before you do that. It, you know, Kane Waters asked for every financial part of their personal life and business life so they can develop a plan. At NDP, we're asking for every part of the business you're either buying or the business that you're selling so we can understand it to explain it to you to set expectations to the buyer to establish and show them why it's worth what it is to the bank to support it and to the both of you to address your questions of why something is going to work or not going to work in in perhaps a partnership or when the two of you are working together you know post-close you have to get it so just reiterate it is a lot of work but it is one of the largest assets you have on your books. And so you just need to make that investment into gathering the records, finding a good team, and then allowing them to guide you through a very, very emotional, yet very large financial decision. Yep, absolutely. So anything else you can you can think of before I wrap us up here today, Mr. Loretto? No, just pray for my son to say more than just goodbye, dad, you know, and hello, dad. That's my ask. <laughs> From transition to children, we cover it all here. All right, that's all we have for today. Thanks for joining us on episode 58 of Transition Talk. We love doing what we do and we love talking about it. So make sure to share the transition love with those who may not know of us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. Until next time, friends. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you.